Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of The Value Guys. I am a 30-year Wall Street veteran who's had to take on a secret identity and go underground in order to provide my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen my face on TV, you've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unfiltered views on the air, so I've disguised my voice and they'll never know. This week, I'm looking at the uh, August 6th, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey. Um, uh, But before I get to that, a couple of caveats. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and that's not a guarantee. Uh, secondly, I have many conflicts of interest, the most important of which my lawyer says I need to tell you is that I may be recommending the opposite of actually what is in my own best interest and tricking you. So there's that. Um, but I'm not doing that, I assure you. Third, and this is a real caveat, I may be completely uninformed. Uh, I am a 30-year professional, but hey, look, there's a lot of stocks in the world. I haven't heard of all of them or even most of them. And um, I page through Value Line and I look for interesting ideas. It's after work, um, which brings me to one of my final caveats, which is I'm quite likely drinking. And tonight I am. Uh, And so, uh, you know, there's a, there's a caveat. See all the caveats at www.thevalueguys.com. There's bios, pictures, all kinds of stuff there uh, that tell you about um, you know who the value guys are. And there's also some uh, buttons on the site. The, the best one is that uh, you've got a Val's Best Ideas button where I've been putting up ideas for about five years. we got about five years of shows now on iTunes or at that website. And, uh, you know, the way I do it is every few weeks or months or so, I pick a best idea from the stocks I talk about during each show, and uh, and I buy some shares. I got the price in there. You can see the return. Um, and I've saved it in a Yahoo Finance uh, template, but it comes in as a as a picture, but the links work, and so that's something you can see as well. Um, now, I organize the show as little as possible, actually, but um, I like to do a little thing in the front called It Would Help My Portfolio If, which is kind of a rant, unless I'm a little sleepy, which I am today. So, who know, I don't know how that's going to turn out, actually, so we'll see. And the second part of the show is three ideas out of value line. Three kind of value ideas. And so, uh, first, it would help my portfolio if, well, okay, the market's been extremely volatile. And I think I'm reading, it's, I know I said this is the August 6th show, and that's probably what it says on on the iTunes link and all that, but it's actually... I think it might be August, uh, what, 13th today. So it's actually Friday, the week after I should be doing this show. But as long-time listeners may know, 2010's been a tough year for me to 
uh, get to show up on a regular basis. I moved, uh, then my office is moving, uh, we're working on legal issues in the shop, and uh, etc. And then, the, you know, up until recently, the portfolios were doing better. People wanted to meet and talk about hiring the firm, which, you know, it's good, but it's busy. And so I've been less diligent than I've been in past years getting the show up. But, you know, if there's a week I don't get the show up, I've got, I think there's, I don't know, 200 shows in uh, iTunes. You can look in there, the Value Guys, um, or Value Line Observer, or uh, Google. And all the shows are up, and you can find them. And so, and actually, they're all indexed by ticker. If you go to the homepage and pull in that um, RSS code into um, Microsoft Explorer, It'll lay out a format there where you can type in a ticker and see if we've had a show about it over the past few years. And quite likely we have. We've done a lot of shows. So, um, but I digress. Um, I'm late with the show, but I still, I still want to say that it would help my portfolio if we could have less uncertainty in the market. And, of course, there's always uncertainty, no question. But... Uh, right now, it seems like you're really in a position where there's a 50-50 chance either way. Either we're going to have policies that uh, lead to a lower growth and lower valuations, or uh, you're going to have policies that lead to higher growth, higher valuations. Right now, we've got this tax rate thing coming. And, you know, being in the market every day, I think there's so much uncertainty. You can see that by the volatility. As the volatility goes up, it suggests that there's not a clear consensus because new information moves the consensus so much relative to if you had a strong consensus one way or another, new information would not necessarily move uh, the consensus on a percentage basis that much. And so as you move from one scenario to another, at this 50-50 point of information, you have dramatic swings in the valuation of securities. And I think the biggest problem we have, um, of course, you know, investing is always uncertain. You know, how are companies going to do? How are products going to do? How's the new hire going to do? How's that new factory going to do, etc.? But um, right now, the uncertainty is more about the rules um, really coming out of uh, the the IRS in Washington. What are the tax rates? What can I spend? You know, if you're looking at a project and it has a certain return, you need to know what your taxes are to know if you're covering your cost of capital and those sorts of things. Um, we don't know what that's going to be. We don't know the income tax rate. We don't know the capital gains rate. And this isn't just a problem in uh, in America. I mean, this is a problem worldwide. When you have unpredictable rules of the game, and I'm not saying that's, you know, there's lots of games with unpredictable rules, including capitalism, but there are certain rules uh, in capitalism in terms of trying to get the highest profit, highest return on capital, best deal, that are unchanged for thousands of years. You know, if you know you have a capitalist, you know what they're trying to do. That's maximize their profit, their return, their advantage, etc. And that's clear. But when you don't know what the tax rates are going to be, 
um, you know, or the cost of labor, those kinds of things. In medicine, the cost of medical equipment because of these taxes. All these uncertainties uh, generate a lot of caution uh, amongst the capitalists who own the capital in terms of making decisions about where to invest it because it's not clear where the best after-tax returns are going to be. And when you're investing in plants, factories, uh, science that takes, in some cases, you know, five years, two years is, I mean, how long does it take to build a factory that's short? How long does it take to invent uh, a new medicine that's long? I mean, so, you know, if we could get some stability in the rules, and I think one of the great things about uh, the 80s, which I think, you know, people give Bill Clinton a lot of credit for the 90s uh, because it was such a period of great economic growth, um, you know, I think you have to look to the radical change in tax rates that took place uh, really in a couple of steps in the 80s, and it wasn't really until, I think, um, you know, maybe 80, what, 4, um, that the, the lowest tax rates started to kick in and people started to have some confidence that they were going to be retained and, you know, as we saw, there was a lot of capital that got invested during those periods because the rules seemed to be pretty clear, the rules to the game. And so people could focus on, you know, the energies of the country on how to build the best thing, how to make the best health care, how to make the best transportation, how to make the best computer, the best software, these kinds of things. But when you have uncertainty the way we do now, there's enormous dollars going into legal and lobbying because you have to prepare yourself. You're in a caution mode. You're in a defensive mode, an insuring mode. And there's just ungodly amounts of money and capital that would be better invested in inventing new things, becoming more productive, etc., than instead are going into uh, a very defensive fortress mindset of building legal um, barriers and regulatory barriers around existing structures uh, rather than freeing uh, capital to build the structures of the future. So, I don't know. I better, let's see, is that a, I, I better stop there. I'm just, I started to get on a roll. Uh, it is a night where I have been, I guess, heavily drinking, I guess. And one reason is I'm going on vacation and, uh, but, you know, you don't want to do that. So it would help my portfolio if they would, in governments all over the world, get some rules, vote on them, let the people vote. I don't think it really, you certainly shouldn't have it one or two people deciding these. Create rules that, you know, all of history has determined are fair and peoples from around the world. Stick to them and stick to them for 10 and 20 year chunks of time. I'm talking about things like tax rates capital gains rates, things like that, simple things that let capitalists and the people that own the property and the money uh, decide uh, to use it in its best use and use resources to achieve that rather than spending money on defense and insurance and legal, etc., etc. And if you do that, it will reduce required returns because risk premiums will fall, and in turn, that increases the underlying value of all the assets. And I think when you're dealing with returns 
at these levels, um, you know, if we could just get a little bit of clarity, you could move um, growth and GDP growth in a pretty meaningful way if you could unleash, I think, uh, some of the capital that's on the sidelines due to these uncertainties. That's it. So rant over. I'm sorry that took such a long time. Hopefully, if you got bored, you fast-forwarded through that. All right, what do I have this week? Three good ideas, I think, medium medium ideas, uh, from the August 6th issue. Um, First up, Oxford Industries, ticker OXM. And I'm not going in page number order, although I did get an email suggesting that I should bring page number order back. And a gentleman was kind enough to send me uh, some scans of a 1973 value line, which is a little different, but not too different than the value line of today. So that was uh, that was very nice of that gentleman to send that that to me, and he encouraged me to maybe think about doing the page numbers again, which I took out because people didn't seem to like them, but. You know, I printed these on a computer. I don't have the page numbers, but I'm going to bring them back. I think that was a good idea. And even though you're the only one that suggested that and nobody else seems to like the page numbers, you and I together, I think, have a quorum or what have you, so we can bring that back. Anyway, this week I don't have it. Oxford Industries. Okay, sorry to waste so much time. What do I like about Oxford Industries? Um... Well, we're in this double-dip environment, so all of a sudden we're back to a little bit of a mindset that if something's somewhat discretionary, people don't need to buy it. And Oxford Industries makes brands. Tommy Bahama is half their business, just about. And then they also own Ben Sherman, Indigo Palms, a couple of other things. I mean, if you've been in these stores, you know what they have. Um, They've got kind of a point of view that, uh, you know, I think resonates with a certain sort of mindset and uh, it's, you know, definitely higher end and it's well-made stuff and they're in good department stores and luxury goods, definitely, you know, discretionary. But um, as we move through this period, I I think that the theme I kind of have on this one and the reason I came to it is it's trading at five times EBITDA. So that gets my attention. Valuation is really one of the first things I look at, and it gets my attention. Five times EBITDA to me means um, that the you know the ma- the math problem we're simply doing is enterprise value divided by EBITDA is five. Well, I look at the inverse of that. EBITDA, which represents earnings before interest, taxes, and depreciation, represents it's a guess a little bit of the cash flow that I would get if I owned all the stock and all the debt. And, of course, you got to invest in some facilities and working capital and such, which would come out of that. But it's an approximation. And enterprise value is the cash we'd have to spend to own the right to all that uh, cash flow. So I think you can look at it as a yield. So five times, one over five, 20%. The bank is paying three or four where can you get 20%? Well, if you and your buddies all got your money together, the market cap of this, well, it says 375 here million. The the print the printed price on this value line is 22, but I just checked uh, 
the close on Friday, which is the whatever date, the 13th, and it's 2044, so it's 10% cheaper. This thing is even less than five times. Now, of course, you know, maybe the EBITDA estimate I'm looking at for 2010 or 2011 won't be right. Of course, it could be a year or two off. That's the thing as a value investor you have to be prepared for. You don't know exactly. Uh, it's five times EBITDA, but what year is that EBITDA going to be in? Well, to the growth investor, <coughs> it better damn well be this year because if it's not, it means the growth is slowing and I don't like that, so I'm out. To a value investor, you just have to be a little bit comfortable that you don't know exactly when. You're looking at a yield, um, and, you know, the yield that you're getting, the EBITDA you're looking at, I mean, you have to think about, is that a sustainable EBITDA sort of a number? So you're looking at sales, you're looking at uh, number of stores and sales per store. You know, what I tend to look at with something like this one is... Um, you know, being someone right in their target market, basically, I can tell you that uh, they have a unique position in the sense that where women have a lot of brands to choose from in the high end, you know, I don't think men have quite as many. And so um, the fact that they've got stores and they've got themes and those things that uh, so many women's brands have done so well with for so long, you know, they're kind of new and they're there and... Uh, and they've got the quality. And I think when the economy gets a little more stable, uh, to the extent that some of these uncertainties are known, and they will be, you know, it's just a period of time when there's uncertainty. There's going to be rules put in place. There's going to be political movements that require some certainty around these things, and you can already see it building. And, you know, it doesn't. it's not so much what is the tax rate. <coughs> it's just like, let's get one and keep it for a while. So people can plan, you know, that kind of a thing. Can you imagine uh, trying to put a pool in your yard when the property line keeps moving around? I mean, what are you supposed to do? And I think that's kind of like that that's going on. And a company like Oxford gets caught up in that because I mean, their sales are going to change depending on what happens to the estate tax, quite honestly. There's a lot of inheritance that if people die in 2010... Some of that money is going to go into these products, and if that person dies in 2011, there's a giant tax bill, and they won't go in. And I'm not kidding, and I think luxury goods uh, are facing this. And that may be another reason this thing is cheap. So the nice thing about interest rates as low as they are now, that if the EBITDA comes in 2011 or 2012 or 2013, honestly, at you know 2 and 3%, um, real cost of capital or risk-free rates, I should say, you're not really missing anything to wait. And that's a unique thing with these low valuations combined with the low interest rates. There's a huge premium for taking on a little risk. And so is this a franchise? That's all you got to ask yourself. Will this company's product uh, <coughs> be able to sell into a market that historically, um, yeah, we're in a little period here, but the wealthy uh, sort of, you know, goods market, um, it waxes and wanes a little bit, but it, it always comes back. Some, you know, won't survive. These guys look like they're in pretty good shape. I look at their balance sheet. They have um, very modest debt. 
you know, um, their interest rate, uh, their interest rate is decent. Their coverage is not great right now because profits are down. But I think we're looking at a low on that. Uh, they are doing a uh, a nine percent operating margin, which is low. One of the things I think that you know I'd have to hope for in the stock and would look for is an improving operating margin. They've been improving it a little bit in the last few years, but you know they're they're not impressing me right now with their ability to operate a store when they have a nine percent operating margin. I'd really rather see that at uh, you know, 11, 12 sort of numbers and, and in those ranges. But I I think that they can get better. And I and I think that if they, you know, get a little bit of, a little bit more scale, <clears throat> that they'll achieve that. They have been buying some shares back, so I like that. Um, you know, and they have decent returns on capital. So uh, 9, 10, 11, 12 percent, they lever it up a little bit, 20 percent return on equity. They don't look like they're growing too fast. Some stores, you know, get out ahead of themselves, etc. And so um, I think the valuation here attracts me. I do think they do have a brand that does have a call on some market share in this sort of luxury men's fashion business. And uh, and so I'm I'm taking a bet on it. Oxford Industries ticker OXM. <coughs> Excuse me. I've been very busy. I need to take a drink. I did a lot of driving today. I got out in the countryside. I thought we were going on vacation today, so I took the day off, didn't go into the office. Turns out we're going tomorrow. So, you know, it was hot, but I took a drive, tried to relax. Um, but, <coughs> excuse me, I think I'd hurt my throat a little bit. Oh, <coughs> so, excuse me. Let's see here. Um, next up, Carter's, ticker CRI. It was a little bit of a retail issue this week or last week. Again, I'm drawn to this. It's a brand. I think we're in a little dip here where the market wonders if, you know, people will ever be buying things again. And it can seem pretty discretionary. But... Um, and it's at a 30% discount to the market PE. That's getting my attention. They put up a, you know, mid-20s percent return on equity, a mid-teens return on capital. Those are very respectable numbers. This is a store that is putting up low-teens operating margins, so that's respectable. And um, let's see, you know, their balance sheet is uh, really in much better shape than Oxford. Uh, they have their interest covered 30 times, not two times. And uh, they have cash that completely offsets the debt. And they have a niche that you might argue is a little safer than the Oxford niche, which is, you know, kid stuff. They're trusted for quality. There's not a lot of people sitting in that, you know, little shrine of great quality for kids and trusted. You know, I mean, maybe Oshkosh is in there, what have you. But, um, so it's not quite as cheap as Oxford. It's eight times EBITDA versus five. <coughs> part of that is the balance sheet, certainly, as well. But part of it may be the, uh, the niche and the safety of it. Let's see. Um, 
according to value line, you know, growth is slowing. We are in this little dip here. I think something that people may be missing is when industrial production plummeted in the fourth quarter of 08, I mean, people just stopped making goods because they couldn't get a loan or they had to fear they wouldn't make the payroll. Things just stopped in their tracks. And you can go look at all this data at the St. Louis Federal Reserve site. They've got great data in something called National Economic Trends. So I recommend looking at that. But what ended up happening was they hit the brakes hard, but then it turned out that the, the stop sign was still, you know, whatever, 30 yards ahead. So it, it, I don't know if you're going to get that analogy, but, you know, the inventories were deplenished such that, you know, some of the growth here we've had in the last, uh, you know, the, the the, the turnaround in GDP growth and and uh, quarter over quarter and such is in large part just getting inventories back to a normal level because uh, really in that fourth quarter of 08, manufacturers were preparing for just the absolute worst because they might have to shut the plant. So that leads to a big slowdown in production. And, you know, uh, we're, we just got back to more normal inventory to sales levels that's where we're at now, but now what you run into is banks again, these guys. Um, and I'm kidding, it's about how much money we all have, but the banks have had to tighten up their lending standards because it turns out if they loan to people who don't have the traditional uh, ability to pay back those loans as measured by metrics that have been studied over hundreds of years, etc., then they lose money, so they're tightening up on that. Uh, and meantime, um, you know, people don't want to borrow as much money. I think the savings rate, you know, not that it's a super accurate number, but it's the best estimate we have. The savings rate has moved from, I think, a decade of negative that no one could explain and people would come out and say, well, that's got to just be bad data, two big series that aren't exactly right and all that. But no, it turned out that People thought they were saving by the improvement in the value of their homes. Now no one's counting on that. A big source of demand for debt is really just people wanting to buy homes that they thought were going to go up in value. That notion is sort of washing out such that demand for that's, you know, just that speculative demand for increase in the value of your asset is moving away. You know, banks are going to just simply have less uh, effect on uh, demand in terms of uh, people borrowing more money, and that's going to put a damper on growth in all retail, including Carter's. So that could be, you know, one reason why we're seeing a little pullback here. But longer term, um, I think that this stock is, uh, you know, well positioned to do well. There, one way I look at eight times is uh, 8 times EBITDA is uh, the inverse, 1 over 8, 12.5% return on uh, my cash cost to own the right to the cash flow. When I look back over history here, you know, their operating margin um, has traditionally been in the low teens, and I think that's, you know, it's it's low enough to keep out competitors who can't make money at the same pricing, and it's high enough where they're generating 15% returns on capital, which is a very respectable return, again, compared to what you can earn at the banks. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
as I mentioned, their balance sheet is in terrific shape. They use a little bit of their excess cash flow here to buy shares, so uh, not as aggressively as Oxford has from time to time, but, you know, they're buying a little bit of stock in. Um, let's see. A value line thinks their earnings are going to grow at 12% a year, and so if I get a 12.5% cash-on-cash return, which is 1 over 8, the 8 times EBITDA, uh, twelve and a half, and I get twelve percent cash flow growth. This thing really has an opportunity to return, you know, twenty five percent, something like that. Um, and so I like that. Anything north of twenty, I think, is a good addition to the portfolio. The higher it is, I'd say, the bigger percentage of your portfolio it should be. Um, you know, particularly if you think about that in terms of risk. If something has twice the upside. <coughs> terms of return, but you view it as twice as risky in the sense of the company going broke or something like that, you know, um, well, you got to equalize that. But uh, generally speaking, higher return, you should own more of it uh, in a diversified portfolio. Carter's ticker CRI. I don't think I did a great job on that. I got off on that wild tangent that, you know, I don't even know where I was going on that. Uh, Value Line says the comparisons at Carter's are going to be tough. I think so. You know, there was some inventory fill. That's going to be tough. And, um, you know, because uh, they do some of their product at wholesale, which would be stores they don't own. And so you don't know what the end sales are there. Um, you could have people like Macy's buying a bunch of product, holding it in the warehouse, even though end product sales are good. There's no orders coming over to Carter's. <coughs> so that creates a little lumpiness in some of these things that I think you have to just look through um, to a time. Again, the theme on this is strong brand in a niche, good operator because you've got good returns, strong balance sheet, and evaluation where I can earn over a 20% return. I like that. Okay, finally, and I'm sorry, this show seems like it's kind of going on a little bit. My voice hurts. And I'm just, I just have had to, uh, I'm drinking smoothies. And so it's, uh, it's helping my throat feel better, but it may be harming my, uh, analysis of these stocks. I don't know. You can tell me. Anyway, last up, one I've done before, TJX, ticker TJX. Value line rates this one. So, you know, it's not always that value line and I agree because they use momentum a lot in their ratings. But, you know, when you have a period like March of 2009 come along, I mean, everything has momentum right now, uh, you know, because everything's off those lows. So, um, but that just tells you what great bargains there were at those times. TJX, if you don't know the company, they own Marshalls and TJ Maxx. And they didn't always course, one time they just owned TJ Maxx and then they bought Marshalls. The great thing about owning both, <coughs> you may not think about this or not, I don't know, they kind of have this cool sort of monopoly in terms of giving the brand companies, the, the manufacturers that put out branded merchandise, access to a liquidation channel that's a step above having to take vans um, into the middle of, you know, two states and dump them out or to college, 
you know, uh, opening days to sell them out of the bags, which sometimes they do as well. But here, uh, by owning both, you know, the brands generally try to make enough items such that they give themselves a chance to have some hits, meaning goods that sell a lot. The others aren't big hits, but they've got their good brand, and then they want to sell that through the TJ Maxx Marshalls channel. <coughs> Years ago, those were separate companies, and the big brand companies could play them off each other, and the margins at TJ Maxx and Marshalls were both low, hence the purchase. Now, TJX kind of talks to the brands and says, well, listen, here's what we're willing to do for you. And because the value of hits, that is uh, a style or something that really takes off, that's you make so much money on that. With Sometimes these fashion items can have a 70 or 80% incremental pre-tax margin, you know, once you've already paid for all the design and the transportation and all that and, and the fabric. I mean that's always up. That's that's the that's the cost of goods at that point, and so you tend to make enough stuff to give yourself a chance to get that home run. Well, these uh, Marshalls and TJ Maxx serve a vital service by keeping the brand uh, accessible to um, bargain shoppers. It's kind of free advertising in a, in a sense, and uh, it keeps the the notion alive that. You should aspire to a higher value product, and yet here you are buying the brand at a lower price, and it 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 works. And all I can tell you is this company puts up some of the highest returns on capital in retailing. Forty um, percent last year, fifty percent return on equity. This is a company that does twenty-one billion dollars in sales. These are Microsoft kinds of returns on capital, ladies and gentlemen. It's it boggles the mind how high these numbers are, and it tells you something about the formula of high turnover in fashion, bargain fashion, high turnover in real estate that doesn't cost a lot, and they don't do any or virtually no advertising. So it's an amazing, um, you know, it's an amazing model that works, and uh you know they've got more cash than debt on the balance sheet. They got a billion eight in cash. They've got eight hundred million in debt. Now, of course, you got to look at the leases as well. But uh, Value Line gives you that number. They have nine hundred million dollars in rent rentals. And if I look at their gross margin at twenty eight percent, or if I look at the nine hundred million divided by their sales, it's about um, a a 5% number, and I believe the gross margin that Value Line shows is after rent, and oftentimes with these retailers, the rent number is in the cost of goods because you need to pay the rent to sell the goods. That's the rationale for it. And so it's quite likely that the gross margin pre-rent here is in the mid-30s, and after rent it's uh, 28%. But debt net of that rent is very modest. Uh, the company, you know, uses almost all their excess capital to buy stock. They've been buying stock back consistently uh, for 20 years. I mean, it's uh, it's a great record of doing that. Enterprise value to EBITDA right now, again, the ratio of the price we'd have to pay to own the rights to all the cash flow here divided by the cash flow is, uh, and I don't have a calculator here, as you may recall, 
but um, according to value line and and this price is um, five percent lower than it was on this page on the page here um, so but I'm not going to adjust for that it's too hard 17 billion in equity value market cap and uh, 800 million in debt I'm going to add that in that's 17.8 minus 2 billion that's uh, 15.8 I'm going to call that 16. 2.5 billion in EBITDA. So that's about seven times, six and a half times. One over seven is 14. One over six is six. It's like 15% cash on cash. And then Value Line thinks they're going to grow at 13%, which would, again, get me into the mid to upper 20s. <coughs> um, and I think that's a great place to be. And it's also one of these stocks that makes a lot of sense, you know. Um, department stores, where a lot of these high price initial markup, you know, high initial markup goods are, department stores have been losing market share of total apparel for 20 years. I mean, you're still going to have that high end uh, that buys high end apparel in the department stores. Many brands have opened their own stores, but the biggest growing section has been bargain shopping. So, I forget what they call it, discount store, Walmarts are certainly in there. But these guys are in there, and it just makes sense. Why pay more than you have to? It's no embarrassment, and the results uh, suggest that. Um, let's see. The, evidently, uh, their numbers are good. Value line is raising estimates, as I'm sure others are. Recent traffic trends are good. Uh, they're talking international expansion, etc. So just take a look. TJX, ticker, TJX. Best idea this week, I think, is going to have to be uh, Oxford. You know, probably because I've talked about TJX before, it's probably been a past favorite. I'm going to pick Oxford this week, OXM. And uh, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening in, everybody. This has been the Value Line Observer with values of the value guys. See all our shows and caveats and pictures, etc. at www.thevalueguys.com. Thanks for listening, and everybody, bye-bye.